So am I going to put the first one up? Is that... Ah, good, thanks. Well, seeing is believing, or is it? Seeing is believing. What you can see is what you believe. What you can't see, you don't have to believe. That's what's called a thoroughgoing materialism. What you see is what you get. But we know that that's not right. That really nothing could be further from the truth of the gospel, that from what God teaches is about reality. But even though we believe it in here, our heart sometimes finds it hard to catch up, doesn't it? Let me tell you the story of a man by the name of John Merrick. John Merrick was the man upon whom the book and film called The Elephant Man was uh, was based. John uh, Merrick was possibly the ugliest human who had ever lived. Um, here is a description of him. He had a bony mass protruding from his brow. He had spongy skin with a fissured surface resembling brown cauliflower hanging in folds from his back. A huge misshapen head, the circumference of a man's waist. The mouth was a distorted, slobbering aperture. The nose, a dangling lump of skin. Uh, His right arm was overgrown to twice its normal size, its fingers stubby and useless. Flaps of skin in the shape of a paddle descended from one armpit. Deformed legs supported him only if he held onto a chair. A sickening stench emanated from the fungus skin growths. John was abandoned by his mother at four years of age and he was sent to the workhouse. He was finally picked up from that workhouse by a carnival showman who exhibited him as a human freak uh, where people paid to come and gawk at him and scream when they saw him, scream in terror. He was treated really not much better than uh, a circus animal or a dog. He was caged uh, and uh, orders were barked out at him. One day, uh, the police raided the circus and he, they, the, poli- the, the showman fled and he was left uh, in a heap to fend for himself. Uh, a young doctor, a man by the name of Frederick Treves, uh, sorry, John Treves, uh, no, Frederick Treves, I've got that wrong on that screen, sorry, it's Frederick Treves, um, took him to hospital. Uh, that the staff initially were absolutely repulsed by him and they, he, he, what they just re- repulsed back uh, in, in horror. But Dr. Treves finally got him cleaned up and, uh, and helped him to settle into life in the hospital. And Dr. Treves learned to understand Merrick's speech. And to his utter surprise, he was not an imbecile. He was literate. He was a voracious reader. He knew the Bible, he knew the Book of Common Prayer, he read, had read Shakespeare and Jane Austen. And by his description, uh, uh, by the way that Treves described him, he was a Christian man. Uh, John Merrick had asked that he could live out his life in the hospital, um, but please, um, uh, he just didn't want anybody to come near him because he knew what it was like when people came near him uh, that they would just repel back in horror. And one day, um, uh, Treves, uh, Dr. Treves persuaded a friend of his, a young and pretty widow, to enter Merrick's room with a smile, wish him good morning and shake his hand. In short, to treat him as a human being. And this is what uh, uh, Treves writes in his, uh, in his writings. The effect upon poor Merrick was not quite what I had expected. As he let go of her hand, he bent his head on his knees and sobbed until I thought he would never cease. He told me afterwards that this was the first woman who had ever smiled at him and the first woman in the whole of his life who had shaken hands with him. From this day, the transformation of Merrick commenced and he began to change little by little from a hunted thing into a man. Now, if Dr. Treves had lived by the maxim, seeing is believing, 
as the freak show owner did and as everybody else who saw um, uh, John Merrick did, John Merrick should have been confined to the rubbish dump. But Dr Treves saw something beyond the visible, beyond the ghastly physical form. And that sight transformed the way that Merrick uh, treated... Uh, uh, sorry, that, that sight transformed John Merrick. The two key verses that this whole passage is built on are chapter 4, verse 18, which says, For we do not focus on what is seen but on what is unseen. And also, chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. And both are expressing the same idea. You can't live by only what you see, can't live only by what you, you, sorry, you can't believe only what you see, you can't live only by what you see, you can't trust only what can be seen. There is an unseen reality which is much more sure and stable. Well, our passage uh, uh, at this point, our second passage today, begins again with, therefore, verse 16, therefore we do not give it up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Now, we've got that little word again, therefore, I want you to just turn to the person next to you and to ask yourself, why is the therefore there? What's it there for? Remember, you've got to look back and look what's coming after. Have a quick look at that um, verse together uh, and then uh, somebody might be able to tell me. Okay, so why does Paul here say, therefore we do not give up? What's he said just before that's led him to say that? What's he talked about just before? Someone, someone, come on, someone. Yes, but, uh, yes, and there's something that is really just in the verses just before it. What has he talked about in the verses just before it? Sorry? It is all for our benefit. It's, yeah, what's for our benefit? What do we do? Well, what's going to happen to us? We're going to be raised. That's right. Because of the resurrection, that's the reason we're not going to give up. Even though death is at work in us, life is also being revealed and ultimately we will be raised completely with him. We see that in verse 14. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus Jesus, and present us with you. So we're going to be raised. Therefore, we do not give up. So he's having introduced in the passage this morning the idea of death and resurrection life. Paul is going to give even more now, even more reasons for not giving up. To understand these reasons, the Corinthians and we have to know that we live in two worlds, two ages, and we have to know the difference between those two those two ages. The problem for us, for all believers, is that we see only the death stuff, don't we? The pressure, the pain, the suffering. It's real and it's tangible to us. And we're tempted to think that's all there is and we'll give up. But one of the greatest facts that you can hang on to as a Christian is that you live in two worlds. You straddle two ages. And that existence in two ages brings with it tension and 
also extraordinary hope. Let me see if I can show you what I mean. So the Old Testament view of time was that the world was created, and that was the beginning of the what they called the Old Age, and it was going to continue on until the Messiah came, and then that would usher in the New Age. But the New Testament view of time is different to that. Yes, at creation and sin, the Old Age began. When Jesus came, he ushered in the new age, but the old age continued at the same time and will continue until Jesus returns. Meantime, the new age has begun and so there is an overlap of the old age and the new age. And we live in that overlap. We live in the red shaded bit. We live at a time when sin still has its effect, where we still die, where we still get sick, um, but we live in the new age, which is the, the age of forgiveness of sin, of extraordinary blessings, of fellowship with one another, the age of salvation. And we live in the overlap. So we live still with the effects of sin, but there is a hope that can be seen that will, uh, will break into history at, at a point in the future when we will know uh, that the, the old age will come to an end. So we live in the overlap of the two. So uh, we're still part of that old order, um, but the new age has already become. Now, as I said, one of the mistakes that Christians make is not to realise that there is present from this evil present age, this age of sin. But there's also a corresponding mistake that some Christian makes, and that is that heaven is already here so that we have heaven on earth. And so that's where you get people who will tell you that um, we really should be very healthy, uh, there should be no sickness, we will have enormous success and prosperity, that we ought to be able to have these things on earth. But those things are promised in heaven, not in the overlap. We still suffer, we still get sick, we still die. So let's look at the two ages and this, and Paul is talking about the two ages in this passage and see what Paul is saying about them. So, let me read from verse 16. Uh, let me read verses 16 to 18. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So the present age is the one that is seen. It's the suffering one. The coming age is the one that is full of glory, the one that the new age, the one that we will have when we either die or Jesus returns. So let's look at some of those comparisons. The first one, the outward nature. Um, this is not just the physical body, but the person, the creature that is that that is designed for this age. It's it's what we see. It's it's us. We are part of this outward nature. But we also have an inward nature, the creature that is designed for the new age. And that person began when they became a Christian. Now, what we need to realise is that we both exist in the overlap, the outward person and the, in the outward nature and the inward nature. We both exist in this overlap. The next comparison, our present outward nature in the present age is wasting away. From the moment we were born, this has been happening. It's like a use-by stamp has been imprinted on us. You know, we see this as we look in the mirror each day and contemplate the ravages of time. Failing eyesight, poor hearing, aches and pains, droopy underarms, I have them. (laughs) Wrinkles, graying hair. We are becoming weaker and weaker. But our inward nature is being renewed. See it there? Renewed day by day. In the present now, this inward nature in the servant of God is getting stronger spiritually. And this is happening at the same time. Let me show you a little graph here. 
It's happening in inverse proportions to each other. Now, the outward nature is that green line. Now, our outward nature is at its most glorious when we are born. (laughs) That's when it's all ahead of us. Um, And from the moment of birth, it starts to decline. You're one step closer to the grave every day of your life until you get down to to the end. But when you become a Christian, and I've put that in the middle of that green line, when you become a Christian, your inner nature is being renewed. And so it is growing in glory at the same time as your outward nature is declining. Does that make sense? Your inner nature is being is being uh, uh, renewed day by day. You see, what does that mean? Our, our hope is getting brighter. Assurance is getting clearer. And, and it's the privilege, isn't it, of Christians like us to see Christians who are old and frail, but they are getting spiritually stronger and clearer and keener as they go on. See, it's not just a repair nature of the old nature, sorry, not just a repair job of the old nature, but it is a new creation. And so that is what is meant by your outward nature is wasting away, but your inner nature is being renewed, your inner person is being renewed day by day. Okay, what's the next comparison? Our afflictions or our troubles are part and parcel of this old age. It's what happens when we live, when we are are human and we live in this age of sin. They're part and parcel of it. But the new age has no troubles, has no afflictions, only glory for the renewed Christian. Now remember, we live in the overlap, so troubles and glory exist side by side. We do experience the glory of knowing Jesus and of being his, but we also experience the troubles and afflictions. Now, Paul says, and this is in the comment bit, Paul says there's a, a, a connection between the two. The troubles are actually used by God to bring the glory on, to achieve it. You see it verse, in verse 17. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. It brings it on because the suffering makes us fix our eyes on the unseen to look forward to what is coming. The next comparison is that our troubles are only light and momentary. But our what is coming is weighty. It's heavy. And it's eternal. So you've got the two contrasted. Something that is light and momentary. The troubles that you experience now. What's coming is heavy and eternal. See, Paul didn't laugh off his struggles. Look at what he says in uh, verses 8 and 9. For we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction. This is in chapter 1. We, we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, for Paul, those troubles were real and deep and painful and lasted for years. What does he mean by uh, we despaired of life itself? Does he mean that, you know... Suicide would have been, you know, a better option for him at that point. But of course, he didn't take it. But that's what he felt like. He felt like that we we had received the sentence of death. But he fixed his eyes on the unseen, on what was coming, the certain future. And when he fixes his eyes there, they became light in comparison to the heavy, to, to the eternal weight of glory. The next comparison is that the present age can be is what is seen, it's what is concrete, what we can touch and see and hear and taste. But the the new age is the unseen one. And it's so easy to become transfixed with what we have and see and touch. It's so easy to think that that's all that there is. 
But we've got to keep reminding ourselves there is something much more certain, much more eternal, much more weighty that is unseen and which is coming. One is temporary, the other is eternal. That's the last comparison. Temporary versus eternal. And for those reasons, we do not give up. We are confident because there is more to life than what we see. What is coming, what is unseen at the moment, is actually more real than what is concrete at the moment. Is that, is that hard to understand? That what we see, so what is unseen, is actually more real than what we actually see. Everything that Paul sees and experiences tells him to give up, but he refuses to do that. He will not lose heart because what he sees is not the full story. He is brimming with hope and confidence. Look at verses um, uh, 6 and 8 of chapter 5. So we are always confident and know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Verse 8, we are confident and satisfied. Why is he brimming with hope and confidence? Because he looks at what he can't see. This is hope and confidence while we live in the overlap, the now and the not yet, between the cross and the return. It's where the seen and the unseen operate together. But how should we think about passing from the seen to the unseen? When the old age ends and we move into that glorious new age, how do we view death? Paul wants us to be confident that God has that one covered. And so he's going to tell us as that there are, he's going to describe living in this age and passing to the new age under four metaphors. Now this is quite a, a notoriously difficult passage. We're going to have to work hard here. So get your neurons snapping away. Okay. The first one is swapping a tent for a house, verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that if our temporary earthly dwelling is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. When we die, we will be able to swap a tent for a house. The tent is the earthly tent we live in, our earthly bodies. It's our temporary house. And at death, it will be destroyed. Now, tents are flimsy, aren't they? They're temporary, and we often suffer inside them. Uh, when we had four small children and not much money, we bought a tent for holidays. I think we had two holidays in it. We decided we're just not tent people. Uh, give me the solid walls and running water of a, an electricity of a cabin any day. Um, my daughter, Nicola, who you, uh, some of you will know, uh, she once went on a school camping trip under tents, and that night it poured and she got soaking wet. She didn't get a wink of sleep. And let me tell you, when I picked her up the next day, she could hardly wait to get home to dry, solid heat. See, the house that we get when we give up the tent is just that. Real, not flimsy. Eternal and built by God, not by human hands. It's God's gracious gift and provision to his children. They're resurrection bodies that we will spend the rest of eternity in. The next point is very important for understanding this passage. We get this resurrection body when Jesus returns on the last day. Okay? That's when we get our resurrection bodies. Let me just show you a verse from 1 Corinthians. Um, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So he's referring then to the time when he comes back, that when he does, that's when we will all be changed and we'll get our resurrection bodies. I want you to start, as I said, hold that in your head for a minute. Now, I think that sheds an enormously interesting light on the way we see reality. Um, you remember the, the great writer C.S. Lewis, uh, he described this world as shadow lands. He's, you know, it's very easy to look around with the natural eye and to say, you know, this is solid, this is a solid lectern and you're sitting on a solid seat and this is a solid building. But, you know, the next world, 
we might be tempted to think is very hazy and misty and vaporish. Well, the Bible says the opposite. This is the world which is just being held together by molecules and will one day be disbanded and disappear into thin air. It's really just shadows. It's shadow lands. But the next life, the next world is fixed and solid and eternal in exactly the same way. It would be easy to look at our body and say, this is a solid body. Uh, but the believer has died. They've got something now that's sort of very hazy and vaporish. No, the Bible says this is a body which will go to dust, but the body that the believer has in glory is fixed and eternal and heavenly. So that's the first thing. We swap this temporary flimsy tent for a solid building when we get to heaven. The second metaphor is two sets of clothes. Um, He now changes his imagery from buildings to clothes and he briefly mixes the the two metaphors in verse 2 when he says, Indeed, we groan in this body, desiring to put on our dwelling from heaven, since when we are clothed we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we're in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed but clothed. Now, Paul says there are two ways of putting on clothes. You can take your old ones off, so I could take my clothes off now and then I could put on new ones. Uh, We could think that this is what Paul means, but it's not. The other way is to put more clothes on top of the existing ones. When I was a kid, on uh, cold winter's mornings, um, where you know we didn't have heating in our house, I would lay my school uniform out beside me uh, on the floor uh, next to my bed. I'd wake up, I'd take my PJs off under the blankets and pull my clothes in and put my clothes on still under the blankets. <laughs> then I would emerge fully clothed. Why? Because in that cold room, I did not want to be naked. It was too cold. Um, or maybe it's like um, you want to go outside and so you put on an overcoat. You put something on over the top of you. In the same way, Paul does not want to be naked. He does not want to be found in a naked state. That is, he does not want to be found without a body. Now, this would happen if he died before Jesus returned. See, at death, his tent is destroyed or his old set of clothes are taken off, but he won't get the new house, his resurrection body or his new set of clothes until Jesus returns. And he doesn't want to be naked to have neither an earthly body or a heavenly body. He doesn't want to be a bodiless spirit. So... He groans, he says, and longs for Jesus to return while he is still alive. That's why he says in verse 4, Indeed, we groan while we're in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, because he wants mortality to be swallowed up by life. This is the third metaphor, swallowing. He wants his life in this tent house to be swallowed up by life, by resurrection life, like a little fish is swallowed up by a bigger fish, gone, just like that. So what did that mean for the believers who had died before Paul wrote this letter? Have they been left bodiless, naked, with nothing? What does this mean for the literally millions of believers who have died since Paul wrote, including Paul? What does this mean for your friends and family who have died? For Paul, I think that he, along with the rest of the other Christians, were expecting that Jesus was going to return fairly quickly. But then time passed and Christians were dying and Jesus hadn't returned. And questions were being asked. If a believer dies before the last day, is he asleep or is he with the Lord? Is he in the grave waiting for the last trumpet or is he in heaven? 
Now the Thessalonians were asking those very same questions. Have a look at this passage here. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by revelation from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. So he wanted to assure them that they were not at a disadvantage. Now let's go down at this point to verse 8 where Paul says, and we are confident and satisfied to be out of the body and at home with the Lord. See, Paul says, if there is a choice between living on in this tent body with all its frailty and suffering and being away from the Lord, if there is a choice between that and dying and having no body, that is being away from the body, yet being at home with the Lord, Then Paul says, I'd rather have the last one. His thinking is based on the simple truth that a person can only be in one place at a time. He is either, in verse 6, at home in the body and not with God. Okay, so here with his tent body and not with God. Or he's at home with the Lord and not in his tent body. Because they're the two choices that face us before Jesus returns, before we all get our resurrection bodies. We are either in our tent body and not with the Lord, not at home with the Lord, or without a body and at home with the Lord. And Paul says, that's the one I'd rather have. And it's really interesting here because Paul has moved from impersonal concepts like tents and buildings and clothes and swallowing fish He's moved from that to coming home. It's not a cold geographical thing, but it's relational. It's warm. See, Paul doesn't give us a systematic timetable of the what and how these things are going to happen or what our bodily form will be between death and the last day. He doesn't do that here or anywhere else in his writings. But what he is absolutely certain of, though, is that at death, He departs to be with Christ. Look at uh, Philippians chapter 1. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that is on earth, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. See, if right now my life is hid with Christ in God, it cannot be any less when I die. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul refers to the dead believers as asleep. We would do well to think that way too, that they are asleep, secure in God's keeping, to be woken and reunited with living believers at the coming of Christ on the last day. I remember hearing a story that uh, John MacArthur, who's an American preacher, told of a young boy who was travelling with his father into town. And they had to cross a river um, uh, to get into the town. And they had to cross the river, of course, on the way home. And the little boy was worried that the river would have risen and be in some sort of flood by the time they returned to go home. Apparently it was a tidal river. And the little boy was saying, I don't think we'll make it across on the way back. It's going to be too hard. I don't think we're going to be safe. We're not going to be able to get through, Dad. And the father was reassuring him that everything would be great. Everything would be fine. And as they were walking back and they came to the river, by the time they got to the river, the little boy had actually fallen asleep. And the father carried him, took him through the river, took him home, took him upstairs, put him in his bed, and he woke up the next morning in his bed. Now that's really quite a real and and comforting picture of the believer who is in the grip of a heavenly father who will make sure that you and I get through the river, the river that's called death, and end up in our home, in our room, in our bed, so to speak, in glory. 
So God makes sure that his people get home safely. Do you notice how Paul calls death presence with God in our verses here and in, and in Philippians? And how he calls life, walking around as we are now, absence from God? You see, he calls death presence with God, but life now as absence from God. There's a, a great old saint by the name of uh, Chrysostom who lived in the 4th century and he says he did this both, calling but both these things, that no one might fondly linger amongst the present things but rather be weary of them and that no one, when about to die, might be disquieted or upset but might rejoice even as departing unto greater good. Which brings us to our last metaphor, an engagement ring. See, uh, in verse 5, he says, And the one who has prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. What's the very purpose that God has made us for? I think it refers to the groaning, the longing, the burden of wanting more than this life offers. And God creates that longing in us by giving us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. The word for guarantee there, or the down payment, in Paul's time was used for commercial transactions. Today, the same Greek word is used for an engagement ring. This one. What's an engagement ring for? It's a sign, beautiful in itself, that something even better is coming. The spirit belongs to the new age, but God has given to us now to whisper in our hearts the spirit, to inspire us to long for what is to come. You know, left to our devices, we could be quite happy with our lot here, or we may not like our new clothes, or they may be not be what, what we expected, but God's gracious gift of the Spirit helps us to see that we were not made for this earthly existence. We were made for another. Let me just read out to you something that um, a man by the name of um, Max Licardo says. He says, The only ultimate disaster that can befall us, I have come to realise, is to feel ourselves to be home on earth. As long as we are aliens, we cannot forget our true homeland. Unhappiness on earth cultivates a hunger for heaven. By gracing us with a deep dissatisfaction, God holds our attention. The only tragedy then is to be satisfied prematurely, to settle for earth to be content in this strange land, to intermarry with the Babylonians and forget Jerusalem. We're not happy here because we're not at home here. We're not happy here because we're not supposed to be happy here. Take a fish and place him on the beach. Watch his gills gasp and his scales dry. Is he happy? No. How do you make him happy? Do you cover him with a mountain of cash? Do you get him a beach chair and sunglasses? Do you bring him a play fish magazine and a martini? (laughs) Do you give him some double-breasted fins and some people-skinned shoes? Of course not. Then how do you make him happy? You put him back in his element. You put him back in the water. He will never be happy on the beach simply because he was not made for the beach. And you will never be completely happy on earth simply because you were not made for earth. Or you'll have your moments of joy, you'll catch glimpses of light, you will know moments or even days of peace, but they simply do not compare with the happiness that lies ahead. And as we wait for this to happen, we will groan. Look at verse 2. We groan in this body, And then in verse 4, indeed, we groan while we're in this tent. It doesn't mean that we groan like we're a whinger. This is not permission to groan like a grumbler, 
Nor does it mean that we groan all the time, wanting to leave, let me get out of here, God. Nor does it mean like uh, like Romans 8, that we groan because we're part of a fallen world. This is the groaning of a woman about to deliver her child, full of hope and expectancy, longing for the child to come, but afflicted with pain and suffering at the same time. It's groaning to put that overcoat on or longing to have that glorious body, that permanent building, longing to go home to be with our Heavenly Father. So let's summarise what Paul is saying here. He says he renews his inner man by looking to unseen things. He looks at three possibilities and prefers them in descending order. First, he prefers that Christ would come back and clothe his mortal body with immortality, give him his resurrection body, so that he would not have to die and be an incomplete disembodied spirit. That's his first preference. His second preference, but if God doesn't do that, Paul prefers to be absent from the body, that is bodyless, He prefers that to living on here because he loves Christ more than he loves anything else. To be absent from the body, to be dead, will mean to be at home with the Lord. A deeper intimacy and greater at-homeness than anything we can know in this life. And the third preference, the final thing, if God decides that it's not time for the second coming and it's not time for his death, then Paul will walk with confidence by faith and not by sight. So we find ourselves living at this point in time, living with the third alternative. I take it we're all still alive here. Uh, We are in the body, but we're looking with anticipation at the first two alternatives. So what do we do? We continue to live in this age, in this body, but how do we do it? How do we live between the cross and the return? The first thing is we will always be confident, just like Paul is. Confident that God has prepared a place for us, has built a new building a new, and has a new body for us, has a new set of clothes for us. And we live here in this earthly, shadowy existing existence, knowing what's coming with no fear and no regrets, just confidence. In one of my Bible study groups, when we were at Liverpool, I had a woman who was uh, became a Christian and uh, joined Bible study and just grew and grew. And uh, one day she discovered that she was sick and she um, uh, discovered that she had pancreatic cancer. Now, pancreatic cancer is a, uh, a very nasty cancer. As a matter of fact, it was only six weeks from diagnosis to death. Uh, and in that time... Uh, her daughter, who was not a Christian, took the six weeks off or took time off work. She didn't know how long it was going to be. So she could care for her mother, take her to Bibles, take her to hospital visits and doctors, etc. And she would bring her to Bible study group because that's where Margaret wanted to be. She wanted to be at Bible study and she wanted to be at church every week. So she would bring her there. And, um, and she saw her mum taking part. And then when Margaret finally went to hospital um, and was there probably for the last uh, week or so before she died... She, uh, her daughter, Debbie, saw her friends coming into hospital and her mother saying to them, I'm so looking forward to going home. I'm so looking forward to going home. And I remember the, the, the day that I visited her for the last time, and I hope I won't cry because I always do it this bit, I leant over her to kiss her goodbye and she said, guess what, Leslie, I'm going to see Jesus before you do. <laughs> and I say, yep, Margaret, that's fantastic. Um, the, the nursing sisters would come in and say, you must surely want some pain relief, Margaret. And Margaret would say, no, God is looking after me. And Debbie was all the time sitting in the corner of the room watching this. She watched her mother's confidence. At the day of the funeral, Debbie said to me, I need to talk to you, Leslie. I said, sure. So I came down the next day. She opened the door after I knocked and she I couldn't even get through the door. And she said, Whatever my mother had, I want. (laughs) Tell me how to get it. 
and she became a Christian that day. It was, I call Margaret the um, the evangelist from beyond the grave because of what she did. Um, it was just exhibiting confidence. And that's, that's what Paul has here. He has confidence that what is coming is far more glorious than what he has now. And secondly, recognize that here we are away from our Heavenly Father, but we are heading home. Are you at home or you are, are, are we're, we're at home, but we're also away? I was in the Philippines earlier this year. Can you imagine that on the flight back home, I decided to make the journey spectacular. Uh, put some carpet runners down the middle of the, the aisle in the, in the plane, put some prints on the wall of the plane, put some fresh flowers in the overhead lockers. Imagine I could have repainted the interior, put some scented candles in the toilet. Oh boy, don't, don't they need it? Um, could have put in an expensive sound system. And when the plane arrived, and it would have been so good on the plane that I didn't want to get off. The truth is, when I fly home, I endure the journey. It's an endurance. And when that song, I still call Australia home, plays and I look out the window and I see the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House and Cronulla Beach, I think, I'm home. You know, and I know that Jim is waiting at the airport for me and I can hardly wait to get off. See, the destination and not the journey is what's important. Don't become so attached to this shadowy existence that is the journey that you miss out on longing to go home to be at the destination. Thirdly, walk by faith, not by sight. See, trusting what God says is what the Christian life is all about. He has given us his word, his great promises, and he says, now do you trust me? Is my word good enough for you? There's a book around, uh, it's probably been around for a, few, for a few years now, called 90 Minutes in Heaven. Uh, on his way home from a, conference, on, from a conference, Don Piper's car was crushed by a semi-truck that crossed into his lane. The medical personnel said he died instantly, and while his body lay lifeless inside the ruins of his car, Piper experienced the glories of heaven, awed by its beauty and music. This is what he says. Uh, 90 minutes after the wreck, while a minister prayed for him, Piper miraculously returned to life on earth with the memory of an inexpressible heavenly bliss. His faith in God was severely tested as he faced an uncertain and grueling recovery. And this is what the book says. 90 minutes in heaven offers a glimpse into a very real dimension of God's reality. The experience dramatically changed Piper's life and it will change yours too. That's absolute rubbish. (laughs) Do you think that if you went to heaven and experienced the bliss of heaven, you'd want to come back? No way. Um, You know, the Bible says you die once to face judgment once and that's it. People who invest in things like that don't want to live by faith. They want to live by sight. They want to know what's really going on, what's going, what heaven is like. The Bible says, what I tell you, this is what God says in the Bible, what I tell you should be good enough for you. Trust me. You don't need all these pictures of what heaven is about. Trust what I tell you in the Bible. What I say should be sufficient for you. And fourthly, Live to please him in the light of judgment. Look at verses 9 and 10. Therefore, whether at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. The time is coming, says Paul, when everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every secret will be brought to light. Paul knows that the judges, that the judge he faces is also his saviour. He knows that, so he faces no condemnation. But there will be an evaluation of what he's done as a Christian. Salvation is not at stake, but God's commendation is. Paul knows that God has called him into a ministry as an apostle and entrusted the gospel to him. And one day he will stand before the Lord to give an account of his faithfulness as a missionary. Now that's the same with us. 
Whatever our ministry is, we too will stand before God's throne to give an account of our faithfulness. How have we used our time? How well have we pursued opportunities when God gave them to us? Have we served our husbands and our children with contentment? If we are single, have we too served with generosity and joy and not grumbling? How carefully have we prepared our Bible studies and our Sunday school lessons? How faithfully have we prayed for those under our care? This teaching about judgment reminds us that God has saved us not for a life of aimlessness or the pursuit of comfort and happiness, but for a life of serving him. C.T. Studd was a, a man who lived in England in the 19th century, born to very wealthy parents and was an accomplished cricketer. He was marked out for a future test cricketer when he was converted to Christ. Um, so he turned his back on his wealth and his sporting career and went to China and Africa and India as a missionary. And he wrote this lovely poem. Here are four verses. Let me just go through them. Two little lines I heard one day, travelling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Both Paul and C.T. Studd longed to hear their father say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would give us a deep sense that this tent that we live in is only temporary. This life we inhabit is temporary. Give us a longing for what is coming. We pray that you would make us unhappy with this life so that we would long for what is coming. Father, we pray that you would help us to live by faith and not by sight that we would love the unseen and not the seen. We pray that we will live confidently as we wait for either our death or your return, but that as we do, we would serve you well. We long to hear you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. So I want to be faithful as I wait to go home, and I hope that you've been encouraged to feel that as well. I hope I serve God well as I wait and know that nothing else is going to last.